Ah, good afternoon and welcome to Wanda's Picks, the Black Arts and Cultural Program of the African Sisters Media Network. And we are so excited to be speaking to uh, Dr. Dorsey Odell Blake um, about the 75th, oh, my goodness, long time, uh, 75th Jubilee anniversary of the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples. Um, and uh, that's going to be on Saturday from 10 to 4, uh, October 19th. And then the next day, there's going to be another wonderful program, uh, the Convocation, which um, uh, is going to be honoring um, Dr. James uh, Abington. And he is an eminent scholar, organist, and master choral conductor. I should have some music, right? I'm just teasing you, but uh, yeah, yeah, but maybe um, I'll be able to get some music and we could put play some a little later. So I just want to let you know a little bit about um, our special guest who is no stranger to these airwaves. Good afternoon, um, Dr. Blake. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. So we're finally having this conversation about this busy, busy weekend that's coming up. So um, I'm going to let you tell our audience more about it because I just told them the titles, but I know that our audience is probably really interested in What does it mean? Um, You know, the 75th Jubilee, like, wow, 75 years uh, of a church that's so unique um, and such an institution in the San Francisco Bay Area. But a lot of people don't even know about it. Um, right. So, anyway, so, yeah, so tell us a little bit about the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples and this 75th uh, Jubilee. And, uh, yeah, and then the next day, you know, the convocation, which is, which which anniversary well, is it for that? Well, it's the 24th, Howard Thurman Convocation. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. We celebrate, years ago we decided that part of, the celebration of our anniversary would be the Howard Thurman Convocation. Mm-hmm. Um, so our church began in 1944. You recall in 1944, we were in World War II. There was a mm-hmm. lot of tension and a lot of people killing each other. In San Francisco, there was a great migration from the South to San Francisco because of the war industry. The population of black people in San Francisco zooped, and that created problems, too, because San Francisco, as liberal as we know it today, also had its problems in terms of segregation and racism and and so on. So there were two people, well, actually more than two people. There was a white Presbyterian minister and professor. He was a professor at what was then San Francisco State College. His name was Alfred Fisk, and he had talked with some people in the area about an interracial congregation, creating one. This would have been the first intentionally integrated um, church in the United States in 1944. Remember, in 1944, all the churches were segregated. Uh, that doesn't mean that maybe a, a black person might attend a service here and there, but they were segregated in terms of leadership. And he, a letter was sent to Dr. Howard Thurman, who was a black minister and professor at Howard University at the time, who was getting to be known uh, throughout the country as an extraordinary preacher and a teacher, leader. 
So what happened was that Dr. Thurman received a letter from Ed Muskie of the Fellowship of Reconciliation. Dr. Thurman had been a member of the Fellowship of Reconciliation for some years, and so had Dr. Fisk. And the letter indicated that Dr. Fisk and the people out here in San Francisco were looking for a young black person to serve as co-pastor of what they perceived to be this new church. And there was no one they could find. Uh, Dr. Thurman recommended somebody, but he said the young man at the salary was not enough for him. Dr. Hmm. Thurman then thought that, oh, my God, this might be the answer to the vision he had at Kyber Pass. Now, in Kyber Pass, the, the experience there was after Dr. Thurman, his wife, Sue Bailey Thurman, a Bishop Carroll, he became Bishop Carroll, and his wife had met with Mahatma Gandhi. This was in 1936. They met in India with Gandhi. And Gandhi at that meeting told them that it could be uh, in fact, it probably would be through what he called at that time the American Negro that nonviolence would have its most powerful exposition. Okay. Now, one of the things to be, that's really important is that Dr. Howard Thurman was a very close friend of Martin Luther King Sr. And Mrs. Thurman was a very close friend of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s mother, Alberta. <laughs> So when Dr. King was studying at Boston University, while he was, Dr. Thurman was also there as chaplain. Dr. Thurman mm-hmm. was the first black chaplain um, at a predominantly white theological seminary in the country. So it was there that King came by, and they talked with King about nonviolence. In fact, they even asked him about coming to Fellowship Church to become the minister. This was after Thurman had left. And that is when Dr. King told Dr. Thurman that they had just decided to go to Montgomery. Okay, to go back. When Dr. Thurman was in India, actually it was a pilgrimage to India, Burma, and Ceylon. And while he was traveling in those countries, the question was raised with him why he was a Christian when Christians were so much involved in the slave trade. And they even said the author of one of your hymns was a Christian who trafficked in the slave trade, which is true. The author of Mason Grace was a slaveholder. So the question kept being raised of why are you as intelligent as you are a Christian? And um, because your faith basically is racist is what they were saying. Well, that led Dr. Thurman finally to write a book called Jesus and the Disinherited. And the question mm-hmm. he raised in that book was, what does, and he made a distinction, what does the religion of Jesus have to say to people with their backs against the wall? In other words, mm-hmm. it's a message from the religion of Jesus to the, what he called, disinherited. He made a distinction between the religion of Jesus and Christianity, because he thought that Christianity had violated much of what Jesus was about. Jesus was, he said, a Jew, a poor Jew, a poor Jew living under the domination of empire, Roman empire. And if you read his book, you'll hear that he has a message for black people and other oppressed people today 
living under empire. So what happened was in 1944, Dr. Thurman and Dr. Fisk came together, and they formed this church, the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples. You mentioned at the very beginning that it was unusual or unique. That is true because people at Fellowship Church did not seek memberships based on what you thought religiously. They were looking for people from very diverse backgrounds, nationality, racial, gender backgrounds, because the belief was that if people came together with these various backgrounds, if they came together and worshipped over a sufficient time duration that they would find common ground, they would seek a kind of uh, coming together that would undercut undercut all the divisions by which people live. It would destroy all the social barriers imposed on people. Again, that was 1944. And for San Francisco, again, the population had really increased. And uh, this was a great venture saying, how do we bring these people, new black folks coming to San Francisco, the white folks who are already here, uh, the Asian folks. You remember this is after they had sent many of the Japanese to uh, these concentration camps. How do we build a community among the various racial groups and national groups in San Francisco? And so they started the church for the fellowship of all peoples. Again, it was not based upon what you think religiously. It was saying, come together, people. Bring your diversity here. And we believe that if we can worship over a sufficient time duration, there will emerge between us an understanding, a sense of common ground, a sense of unity, that will take down all the barriers that divide us. So we've been doing this mm. for 75 years now. And so this yeah. is a remarkable time for us to reflect on where we've been and where we are going. Um, this year is different because the board, we decided also to have a forum. And the board, in honoring me, this is not my idea, I decided to call the Dorsey <laughs> Blake Forum on Social Transformation. And that's oh. on Saturday, this coming Saturday, the 19th of October, beginning at 10 o'clock and going until 4 o'clock. I've been talking mm-hmm. about the need for social transformation for a long, long time. Uh, I think you and a lot of the people who are listening understand and really agree that many of the values which are dear to us in terms of justice, equality, and so on, are not being achieved now, achieved. And they can't be achieved through our current structures. So our point is we have to look at alternative realities as we move forward. And some of the panelists are, in terms of co-ops and other different ways of organizing economics and so on, for example, uh, our speakers are Gus Newport, who was a former mayor of Berkeley. Um, he was also head of the uh, World Peace Council. He's just received an award, the Cahill Gibran Award, for his humanitarian service. He was a person who helped to put together the Dudley Project in Roxbury, the first community to ever claim eminent domain to receive um, land and create housing for people who could not afford housing. And they totally cleaned up a community, which had been the garbage pit of the area. That's literal. People would come in from different areas and just dump garbage there, old stoves, refrigerator, actually food. Um, Gus Newport, Carl Anthony, who many people know in his work with the Earth Island Institute, 
Um, he is also part of the Breaking um, Forth Communities, Breakthrough Communities, mm-hmm. and is the author of The Urge of City and the Hidden Narratives of Race. So Carl will be part of that panel along with Gus Newport, Desiree Fontenelle with Movement Generation, Kevin Bayouk uh, with Lift Economy, and um, Noni Session with the East Bay um, uh, Real Estate Cooperative. So it's going to be a great panel. There will be time for discussion among people. Uh, there will be a dinner, and there will be a play. There's going to be a play, a short play, that talks about the founding of Fellowship Church. So that's Saturday, the Dorsey Open mm-hmm. Forum. Then on Sunday, we'll have the Howard Thurman Convocation. And this year, we're actually honoring an extraordinary person, James Abington. James Abington is a choral director. He's executive director of the African-American Church Music Series. He mm-hmm. edited the book, One Lord, One Faith, One Baptism, an African-American um, ecumenical hymnal. He went to many black churches and found music from all those churches, Pentecostal, Baptist, United Methodist, Episcopal, Catholic, all these groups, and put them together in a hymnal. But the hymnal also includes new songs, like there was a song written about Katrina and what happened at Katrina. So he's extraordinary. Mm -hmm. He conducts workshops all across the nation and beyond. And then we had the extraordinary soprano, Hope Briggs. Mm-hmm. Many of you know her from her extraordinary work in San Francisco. Just an amazing soprano. And master drummer, Pope Flynn from Ghana. Pope has been with us every year for the last, I don't know how many years. Just masterful <laughs> with the drums. And then there's a community chorus that's been organized by my brother, Dr. Carl Blake, who's also the music director at our church, the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples. So that's going to be Sunday, the 20th at 3 o'clock. We will not have morning service, uh, so just a 3 o'clock service. And the address is 2041 Larkin Street, 2041 Larkin Street. That's Sunday at 3 o'clock. The forum is Saturday, again, from 10 to 4. And there is parking. We've arranged to for people to park oh. at St. Bridges Church on Saturday. Um, so um, go to their website, which is www.fellowship.com. SF.org, um, fellowshipsf.org, and there's information about parking. Hmm. Wow, wow. So um, on Sunday when you're honoring um, uh, Dr. James Abington, where yes. where is he located? Like what part of the country does he live? Oh, he's in Atlanta right now at Candler uh, Seminary. Yes. He's uh, in where is Atlanta. He? At okay. Atlanta, mm-hmm. at Candler Seminary, yeah. and he just recently played the organ prelude for the uh, memorial service for Jesse Norman, who passed you know, last week. And so, um, mm. he's known all across the country, not only as a choral director but as an organist. Mm-hmm. Um, he used to play oh, wow. for the Hampton um, Baptist uh, Preaching Conference. Just an extraordinary person and a very gentle person uh, with a great humility. Hmm, mm-hmm. So Hampton, you mean like Hampton, Virginia? Yes. Oh, is he from Hampton, Virginia, or is he from Virginia? No, he's from West Virginia originally, but he's played. Okay. Uh, he's been part of 
Well, he actually played for, as was music director, many, many years in Detroit at Hartford Baptist Church mm-hmm. with uh, Dr. Charles Adam. Adam. Um, mm-hmm. He played for Ralph Abernathy's church, West Hartford Baptist Church. He played or was part of Ebenezer Baptist Church. And in my introduction oh, wow. tomorrow, I'm going to give a little um, – I'm going to talk about his relationship just a little bit to Martin Luther King Sr. So he's oh. quite well known um, mm-hmm. throughout the nation. And he's done workshops. He conducted a workshop last year on music that was held at Third Baptist Church. He, in oh, the past, has been at Beth Eden Baptist Church conducting workshops. Mm-hmm. So he's just an amazing person. Hmm. Nice. Is he going to play anything um, on Sunday? Um, he I know he's being honored. Well, actually, he's going to give a lecture. He's going to give a lecture on Howard Thurman as liturgist and how Thurman used the spirituals and other music uh, as part mm. of his understanding, yes, uh, his understanding of uh, church. And then there's the community chorus, which he made direct. Um, mm-hmm. So we'll we'll have to see if that happens. Oh, that's going to be awesome. What a wonderful weekend. Yes. Right. Hmm. Yeah, wow, wow. Well, let me tell our audience a little bit about you and um wow and and how you how um you know, you're being honored with, you know, this this wonderful um <laughs> forum, you know, Dorsey O. Blake Forum okay. for Social Transformation, you know, so every year now. <laughs> That's going to be super really cool. So it's a great way to kick it off with these folks you you um yeah. you know you name that are part of this this first forum on Saturday, so um, Dr. Dorsey Odell Blake was officially installed as presiding minister of the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples in October 1994. Fellowship Church was founded in, as you already mentioned, October 1944 as the nation's first inter- intentionally interracial interfaith congregation, and I was just thinking um, when when you were talking about that wonderful film, you know, Backs Against the Wall, the Howard Thurman yes. story, a film by Martin um, uh, Doublemeyer. Du- mm-hmm. yes. How do you pronounce it? Uh huh. Yeah, and you're, you're, in the, you're, you're in the film. And, uh, <laughs> well, and we actually. That was my name is mentioned in terms of, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's like, oh, we know yes. him. And, yeah, because that was, um, that was. Yeah, that was this year in um, February, I believe, that it screened on right. um, on what is it, um, American? Um, I'm trying to think, what is it? Um, Great Masters oh, it series. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. That is a really, really good film. I'm sure you all have it in your library. You all have a really nice yes, library. Yes, we do. <laughs> the Church for the Fellowship of All People. But there's a, Go ahead. But there's another film. It's actually mm-hmm. dialogue between Howard Thurman and Landrum Bowling. And this was produced in the late 70s, like 77. And people uh-huh. can go to uh, the Internet and get it. It's called mm. Conversations with Howard Thurman. And it's mm. two hours long, but it's broken oh, into wow. two one-hour segments. And you really get mm-hmm. a chance there to hear Thurman. Uh, as, mm-hmm. It's more of an interview with Thurman rather than a film about Howard Thurman. At, uh, the right. Film against the wall here. Mhm. Oh, wow, that sounds great. And then I remember um I had you and um you know, Reverend Liza um Ranko on my show um 
quite a while ago when um, that yes. that series of um, of of um, in, not interviews but different um, sort of excerpts of of um, uh, no sermons yeah yes. sermons of um, yes. of uh, Dr. Thurman on different topics and yes. it came. To, yeah, what was called? What was the name of the uh, the the, the uh, package? It was on. You know, it's Channel saying two, it, I'm trying to remember. The Living Wisdom <laughs> of Howard Thurman. Right. The yeah, Living Wisdom yeah. of Howard Thurman. Yes. Mhm. Yeah, and I know um, uh, Reverend Liza. You know, she um, she hosted a, a series of 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 workshops, sort of you know, listening and talking and discussing, you know, these wonderful sermons. Yeah. Yeah. And. Uh, that was a really wonderful um, conversation that I played over and over again. <laughs> well, I enjoyed Since, the, um, uh, I enjoyed the conversation. Mhm. Yeah. So, so back to your um, to your bio. Um, so, co-founding minister um, Dr. Howard Thurman is considered by many as one of the most extraordinary religious figures of the twenty twentieth century. During Dr. Blake's installation service. Uh, Mrs. Sue Bailey Howard uh, Thurman presented Dr. Thurman's robe, which had not been worn since his death, to Dr. Blake as a symbol of her trust in his leading the congregation, quote, so that there will be no past greater than our future, end quote. Dr. Blake had served as the minister for two years prior to his installation. In addition to his position at Fellowship Church, Dr. Blake is presently faculty associate at Pacific School of Religion after serving there from 2015 to 2018 as visiting associate faculty. Dr. Blake served as dean of faculty and visiting professor of spirituality and prophetic justice, that's a nice title, at Star King (laughs) School for the Ministry for six years. Spirituality and prophetic justice. Like, whoa, that's pretty cool. Yes. Um, <laughs> that was a title I chose. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. What does it mean? <laughs> well, um, I think that I think there cannot be much social justice and social transformation without dealing with the spirit. Um, mm. And that's one of the reasons, I guess, I, I respond so much to Dr. Thurman because he saw that spirituality, deep spirituality, was a part of what was necessary to really belong to a community. And Martin Luther King certainly embodied this also. So I feel as though if we're going to talk about, and even you look biblically, uh, really look seriously biblically, when the Bible talks about salvation, it's talking about salvation of a community. Uh, It is not really that thing that many people think it's just about I got Jesus in my soul, and that's it. No, it's not. The question is, and what do you do with that? For example, we have a group that meets every month called Engaged Spirituality, which means how does our spirituality impact our social reality? How does it lead us to the beloved community? And that's one of the issues we're going to discuss in the forum. Uh, What is beloved community that King talked about, and how does the work of these people uh, lead us or help us to at least inch forward toward that promised land. And one of the things we know is necessary, and what I try to do in those classes, one of the things that's necessary is for us to develop a new consciousness, a new consciousness that goes beyond individualism of the American society, a new consciousness that understands that we're in this together, we're all related to one another. What happens to one happens to the other. 
and that we have to move toward beloved community as a community. And that and the exciting thing about this is that we have resources. We have resources to do it. It's the idea of committing ourselves. For example, you look at the initial church community, there is a statement in the book of Acts that talks about, and there was no poor among them. Why was there no poor among them? It's because those who had money, those who had wealth, shared it with those who didn't. And when you look at how much money there is in the black community, think of what would happen if we could work together and share that. For example, there are a lot of co-ops, including black co-ops, that are emerging. Uh, when we talk about Noni Sessions and her uh, East Bay permanent real estate, we're talking about bringing people together and putting money uh, in communities. The same thing is true with movement generation. Uh, suppose, for example, and for example, our church has put its money now in a cooperative, self-help cooperative, mm-hmm. worker-owned mm-hmm. cooperative. Uh, there's a huge cooperative in um, Cleveland that really deals with laundry. There's what is called the Mondragon Cooperative, which started in Mondragon, Spain, which employs, I think, millions of people right now. I mean, their, their economy rivals that of Spain, all the rest of Spain. So what I'm saying is that when we look at the social transformation, spirituality and social transformation, we're talking about the resources that we do have can, in fact, be applied in very creative ways to bring about what we need to bring about in terms of dealing with homelessness, um, dealing with food insecurity, uh, dealing with even the questions of brutality and so on, where the community begins to police itself or we come up with a different understanding of what policing is all about uh, in terms of prisons, a different understanding of prisons or the abolition of prisons. So it's looking at the fact that we have power. We don't realize it. We don't use it. But we have power to change the society. We don't have to wait until the government or whomever gets elected president to try to change things because we know there are limitations there. And we're not going to get to the promised land or to beloved community by just relying on structures that are already there. Because, in fact, some of those structures are responsible for the awful conditions under which so many people live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when when is your engaged spirituality? What what time is it? Mondays. Once a month, it means at nine thirty, and you would need to go again to our website www.fellowshipsf.org because the schedule changes. But it's once a month at nine thirty in the morning, and then once mm-hmm. a month we have a social justice uh, documentary film series. And oh, it nice. has just been amazing, some of the things that we have seen on film. Mm-hmm. It's just really extraordinary. Um, so those are ways we have been trying to not just prepare people for this forum and for the convocation, but to really seriously look at how we can make a difference in the world. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. Let's, moving right along through this wonderful um, short bio, which is, it's limited, folks. Um, we, you could write a book. <laughs> and oh, actually, have you written some books? I'm, I'm trying to remember. Have, no, I, I have an read article in the book, Matthew Fox, and I keep saying every year I am going to write. And every mm-hmm. year something comes up in the summer which um, calls to me. 
And mm-hmm. I said, well, maybe I'll just not be one of those people who write a book before I die. But for example, this summer was uh, I was called to participate to attend the um, Samuel Proctor Institute at Alex Haley Farm in Clinton, oh. um, Tennessee, by Marion mm-hmm. White Edelman of the Children's Defense Fund. And she is extraordinary. I never wow. experienced the kind of leadership that she provides. And it was just amazing, just absolutely mm-hmm. amazing. So I'm working mm-hmm. with them now in some capacity, hopefully uh, next year doing a workshop on Howard Thurman. So that's what keeps happening to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I keep saying it right, happened? and I yeah. don't. Wow. Yeah. What happened last year in the summer? Last, oh, and this year, too, the other thing that happened was I was invited mm-hmm. to go home to my hometown, mm-hmm. Liberty, Missouri, where I grew up. Mm-hmm. I was born in Kansas City, but my parents moved when I was eight months old to my father's first pastorate in Liberty, mm-hmm. Missouri, and we were invited back to celebrate the 142nd anniversary of the founding of our little uh, segregated school, Garrison Elementary School. It was also a Juneteenth celebration. So I was invited mm-hmm. back to, to speak. My brother gave a concert the next Saturday, and then I preached at my <laughs> father's church that Sunday. So things keep happening, different things in the summer, and I just can't yeah. seem to say no to them. <laughs> oh, you shouldn't say no. Them. They sound fabulous, these things that are happening they in are. the summer. <laughs> yeah, they, they keep happening, yes. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That that sounds wonderful. The 142nd uh, yes. founding of the school. Wow. It was called Garrison Elementary School, and of course, at the time mm-hmm. it was all segregated, and yet I was a way to sort of honor, at least in my presentation, I did invoke the presence of all those black teachers who were there: Miss uh, mm-hmm. Bradley, Miss Kerford, Miss Mack, Miss Ferguson. And our principal, Mr. C.E. Gant. In fact, a mm. friend of mine has a has done a play on uh, Mr. Gant. Uh, Shelton Ponder is his name. Shelton and my oldest brother, William, were classmates. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's a remarkable look at how he prepared uh, his students for what was finally desegregation and actually what happened to him later when he was not employed uh, by the mm-hmm. predominantly white school system in a capacity as either teacher or principal. Wow. Yeah, my, I shut my computer down, and now everything is making noise. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> trying to, like, figure out how to turn it off. Oh, I think it's done. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, oh, that's okay. Yeah, that's yeah, um, kind of like, where was I? Oh, um, so anyway, um, yeah, wow, that's amazing. Professor of Spirituality and Prophetic Justice, that's where we left off. Right. And and then um, you continue to serve on the core faculty, um, I guess, at Star King School uh, mm-hmm. for the ministry um, until your resignation uh, in January about, I guess, that same, the same year or 2015? 2014, right. Okay, 2014. Okay. And and now you currently serve as faculty associate of pastoral leadership and social transformation at Pacific School of Religion. Yes. And um, prior to joining the faculty at Star King, oh, did you want to say something? Well, yeah, and that's a um, mm-hmm. 
It's worth experience. PSR, a Pacific School Religion, is my alter, alma mater. And it's mm-hmm. really a part of the there, which allows me to. Oh, yes. Um, I came out oh. here in 1968 from Brown University and went to Pacific mm-hmm. School of Religion and graduated in 71 with, at that time, mm-hmm. a master's degree in urban black studies, as well as the oh. master's of divinity degree. Because at that time, mm-hmm. we had a center for urban black studies at what we call the mm-hmm. Graduate Theological Union, which is an umbrella organization for. Uh, um, several Catholic and Protestant seminaries. It's called mm-hmm. Holy Hill. And this right, year, one yeah. of you might be very interested. You know, Zaytuna, <laughs> which is the nation's first liberal arts Muslim college, is also mm-hmm. located on Holy Hill. Mm, nice. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So is is everyone? Are all of the different um, theologies represented now on that hill? Yes, a lot of them, not only various Christian organizations, I mean, Protestant, Catholic, you've got a center for Dharma studies, so we're talking about Hinduism mm-hmm. being there, there's a center for Islamic studies, a center mm-hmm. for uh, Jewish studies, there's a relationship with the Institute for Buddhist studies, and so mm-hmm. most of the major uh, religions are, in fact, represented at um, the Graduate Theological Union. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's... Um that's not that's kind of unusual, right? Um that Yes it is. Okay. It was because I was first... thinking I don't know where else it might be in else in other uh, particular kind of um institutions throughout the country because there are other, you know, um really well well respected ones, but I don't know if anyone have that kind of uh No, I think I think it's the most extensive. It's the most extensive. However, many, many years ago in the sixties the uh, mm-hmm. Interdenominational Theological Center in Atlanta, which is a black center, did pull together mm-hmm. at that time, which is very important, at least black uh, seminaries from various um, traditions. So that was important mm-hmm. uh, at that time. Very important. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. And um, prior to um, joining the faculty at Star King, um, you served as founding director of the Doctor of Ministry program and later as vice president of, for community learning at the University of Creation Spirituality. Um, yes. And Yeah, is, is the University of Creation Spirituality still around? It morphed into Wisdom University. And so oh, okay. one of the things that happened is um, new funding came in, and uh, Dr. In fact, Matthew Fox. Uh, it's no longer really part of it, so it went in another direction, and um, oh. so it still does exist as the Wisdom mm-hmm. University, and there's a Matthew Fox Institute now in Colorado, uh, mm-hmm. where Matthew lectures quite often and speaks quite often, but it's not the okay. same as the University of Christian Spirituality. Yeah, that was a nice place. Yeah, it I, sure I was. Like, <laughs> yeah, was that Holy Names? I think that was like some of those golden days. Um, I didn't follow it. It was when a it holy name, and, and then it moved to downtown Oakland, 22nd Broadway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That would made it really close to the people when it moved to Broadway. Yes. <laughs> yes. And you yes. all had a lot of Wonderful. really good community programs too, mm-hmm. like right. the lecture series and things like that. Yes. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. a great place to be. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. And we. And in addition, Okay. We do things for a few years, and then things move on. So we're very proud of what happened in those few years we were in, in Oakland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And uh, in addition to responsibilities for curriculum, uh, student and faculty development, um, you helped to the, initiate the Martin Luther King Jr. celebration initially held at Taylor Memorial United Methodist Church that annually draws yeah. over 1,000 people. I didn't know it wasn't there right. anymore. Where did it move to? It moved at one point to, uh, was it Castlemont High School? Oh. Not Castlemont. Or was it? Um, I think so. And then I lost contact with it because I have not gone the last few years. Okay. But what oh. happened with that was that a couple of us decided when the, the uh, documentary program was first started, we actually met on Martin Luther King's birthday. And some of us mm-hmm. thought that, oh, that was not right. We could not have classes on Martin Luther King's birthday. And so we decided to oh. move the documentary program from Monday to Friday to Tuesday to Saturday in terms of uh, the Martin Luther King holiday being on Monday. And then mm-hmm. we decided it should not just be a day for us to take off, but a day where we looked at some of King's understanding, some of his writings, and so on. Mm-hmm. So we inaugurated that, and it was held at, we asked my friend Ron Swisher, Reverend Ron Swisher, who just retired last year from the ministry. Mm-hmm. He was pastor of Taylor at that time, if he would host mm-hmm. us. And he did, and we drew... 400 people, then the next year more and more. And then by after a while, I left the university, and it grew to 1,000 people or so. It was really quite amazing. <laughs> the idea behind mm-hmm. that was that really some of us, I was very bothered by the fact that Martin Luther King gets so watered down uh, during Martin Luther King events. Uh, the real Martin Luther King does not emerge, the radical Martin Luther King. What we're doing, in fact, on Saturday really comes out of much of Martin Luther King, what Martin Luther King said. He said before he died the year before that what he was envisioning as beloved community could not be done through the form of capitalism that was rampant in this nation. He argued for, he did not use the term, but he argued for what we would understand as social democracy. He was a social democrat. And um, he talked about the need to totally restructure American society, to go to its roots and come up with a different way of people living. He even had a budget. He talked about there should be an annual budget uh, given to all people so everybody had an annual income. He talked Mm -hmm. about there should be free health care for all the people, housing. This was Martin Luther King in 1967. And we yeah. haven't gotten there yet, and yet we have all these programs talking about Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King. So the idea mm-hmm. behind that was to raise up the radical, the revolutionary Martin Luther King, and certainly we did that for a few years. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. because I remember reading um, uh, some candidates that were um, looking um, at um, the mayoral um, position um, here in Alameda, uh-huh. And and I hadn't heard about the idea of having uh, sort of a baseline income that would be right. available to everyone, and and how that was affordable to do that. So then that means it that is. everyone would have a certain base income, which means nobody, like you mentioned earlier, there's no need for poverty if people share, right? So yeah, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. As as early as 1966, I think his name was Hyman Bookbinder who was an assistant mm-hmm. in the Office of Budget Management. And Dr. King mm-hmm. quoted him as saying that we could eliminate 
poverty in this country if the rich agree to become even richer but at a slower pace, okay? Mm. Uh, when we mm-hmm. look at the trillions of dollars, even this past weekend, the trillions being spent on uh, the Blue Angels. Right. The kind of, what's that? I said, right, yeah. There could take care of a whole lot of homeless people. Mm-hmm. And so this is what it's mm-hmm. about, looking at our priorities, how messed up they are, and trying to help us to look at different kinds of priorities, but not only looking at them, but committing ourselves to going forward to implementing a different vision of who we are as a people and who we can become as a people, as a nation, and as a global reality. Uh, to go back to what you read about Mrs. Thurman, you know, her point is so that there will be no past greater than our future. Isn't that something? She's, mm-hmm. Her insight was just amazing, that we must work so and um, commit ourselves so to a new kind of world order that there will be no past, regardless of how glorious things in the past have been, no past greater than our future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I just think, um, you know, you seem to be the the perfect person to have, you know, sort of been, you know, installed, you know, as presiding minister of the church for the Fellowship of All Peoples because when we think about um, Dr. Howard Thurman and his work, you know, at Howard University, you know, he was always sort of like really visionary in his look, you know, and also mm-hmm. the way, yes. you know, that he viewed ministry, right, and um, yes. uh, and incorporating the arts. Um, and, you know, it was like complete body immersion into the spirit, right? I mean, he was just yes. like, it was, you know, just sort of thinking about some of the, the programming and, you know, it wasn't just like somebody standing at the pulpit preaching at people. It was more like embodiment <laughs> of the word. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. I say that people, yeah. I had the chance, the wonderful opportunity to study with Dr. Thurman. So I studied mm-hmm. with him, and I was also program director of his Howard Thurman Trust for a year out here in mm-hmm. San Francisco. And when mm-hmm. I tell people, he embodied um, what he calls the all-pervading presence. He embodied the divine so regardless of where I might be in my religious struggle, if I was having doubts about God or the reality or whatever, when I was in his presence, I believed. I felt mm-hmm. the presence of the holy, of the sacred um, in him always. There was, and when I first met him, this was aura that came over me, his aura. And I knew, mm-hmm. and I finally raised the question, are you Dr. Thurber? He was just an amazing mm-hmm. person who um, incorporated in his very being the holy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I was wondering sort of when, you know, when you met him and were able to, you know, to study with him. And did you have any idea that where where the path, you know, would lead you, you know, like that moment, <laughs> sort of like no. in the future? No, I didn't. I had no idea. I had no idea that I would ever end up at his church. Um, I just didn't. When I first met him, I was not sure where I was going in terms of my own ministry. I was fortunate enough to come when I came out here to have an internship with Reverend Cecil Williams at Glide, and that was just amazing. 
in terms of the things that he was doing, working with welfare mothers, uh, helping to organize the Officers for Justice, the black component to the police department, trying to give a different understanding of what policing was about. He did so many different things and um, helped me to to really come into ministry because there are a lot of other things that were things that were sort of turning me off. Uh, Howard Thurman's book, Jesus and the Disinherited, helped me to see how Jesus was really about the oppressed. Um, it was not about just his single holiness or acting like it was holy. It was about how do I live in empire? And he mm. showed us ways that people can live in empire and not only retain their souls, but to help others to move forward, uh, to awaken others, like the Buddha, I mean, to, uh, to awaken others to their possibilities and social realities. So it was a blessing coming out here, and Dr. Thurman was part of that. Uh, when I met him, it was not only that, I mean, the, the first class, the class I had with him, he said, I'm going to read to you from the Gospel of Mark, Moffat translation. He said it will take exactly one hour and ten minutes. And when he finished reading, I'd never seen the life of Jesus so clearly before in my entire life. You could see this young man who had decided that he had to dedicate his life. This is Jesus to uh, changing the world, uh, to embodying the spirit of God. And when Dr. Thurman finished reading, I looked at my watch. It was actually, it was exactly an hour and 10 minutes, as he had said. And mm-hmm. this is interesting uh, because not no one in the class raised a question like they usually did. This is at San Damio's retreat center in Danville. When he finished, I looked at my watch, exactly an hour and 10 minute, minutes. Nobody said a word. One by one, we got up out of our seats and just walked out into the night air. That's how powerful it was. Nobody said anything. We were all just led to the deepest resources and recesses of our spirit, and I think what we all did was to walk out in the air and communicate with the great creation, the wonderful cosmos of which we are a part. That was the power of Howard Thurman. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, wow, we're writing a little book as as we uh, as we run through your <laughs> your very brief. <laughs> Resume. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, we spoke about, you know, your various um, faculty positions, uh, and one of the places we didn't mention that you've uh, held um, adjunct faculty positions um, is the uh, California Institute for Integral Studies, uh, the Union yes. Institute, and um, and you've also served on many lucky persons, uh, scholars, dissertation and thesis committees. Um, you served as the director of the Center for Urban Black Studies at the Graduate Theological Union, and I think that's when I met you, and yes. a core faculty member yeah. at GTU. So that was a while back, and I remember, I think, when yes. it went away, and I'm like, oh, that's so yes. sad, because um, it was such such a great um, support for um, those in the ministry that were from yes. African African descent, you know, to have that kind of like, because it was a different yes. conversation happening that was not happening in the classroom, and so, you know, I heard about how great that was through through my friend Carrie. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I feel like Carrie's last name. I can't remember Carrie's last name. Riley. Uh, it was Riley. Wasn't yeah, it? Carrie Riley. Yeah, Carrie, Carrie Riley. Riley. Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. I might have met you through Carrie, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not sure. I think so. But that's yeah, yeah. Do you ever hear from Carrie? I don't no, know where he no, is I, presently. No, I don't. Okay. No, I don't know where he well. is. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. And um, wow, you've like, yeah. You need to publish this. <laughs> you were also <laughs> the first full-time black male professor at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. Tulsa yes. in 1972-77, where you taught in the Religious Studies Department and designed a major in black studies. Um, right. And you already told us that you came out here from Brown University, uh, where you mm-hmm. received your A.B. and your M.A., uh, as you mentioned, from Pacific School of Religion and the yes. Center for Urban yes. Black Studies, and your M.D.A. from Pacific School of Religion and your M.D.A. from United Theological Seminary. And uh, the, you've conducted sim- – oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say the University of Alabama experience was really quite amazing because uh, oh, okay. I left here in 19 – I did not know I was going there. I graduated again from PSR, Pacific School of Religion, mm-hmm. in 1971. Between 1971 okay. and January 72, I served as the assistant to Dr. Williams, who at that time was the director – president of the Center for Urban Black Studies, mm-hmm. what happened was that um, there was a professor at the University of Alabama named Joe Bettis. He was chair of the Religious Studies Department. And I guess he decided, although he didn't tell me he was leaving the next semester, that one of the things he wanted to do was to integrate the school, the, Arts, the College of Arts and Sciences, which was the largest college. And so he contacted a bishop, Will Hirschfeld, who was from Alabama and worked in Alabama and knew Martin Luther King. Uh, Dr. Hurstville, or Bishop Hurstville, was the vice president of the Alma Black Clergy Group, uh, which was a group that ordained me. And Dr. Hurstville was also the vice president of the board of the Center for Urban Black Studies. So he contacted Dr. Williams, um, saying that Dr. Bettis is looking for a young black person to teach at the University of Alabama. So I was chosen. I never even thought about it, but Dr. Williams just said, you're the person. And so I had like two weeks, actually, to leave the Bay Area to organize two courses and to move to Alabama. Uh, but I found that Alabama was – the experience in Alabama gave me a whole lot of respect for the people in Alabama who worked for social justice. Because even when I got there, it was not easy. The, the racism was still there, very, very mm-hmm. uh, prevalent in the air. Not as bad in Mississippi, and Mississippi was another question altogether. So I really commend James mm. Meredith for integrating mm-hmm. the University of Mississippi. Cause I never would have. It was just it was, it was so absolutely racist there. You could feel it everywhere you went. But mm. uh, it was a great experience because I had the chance, my first chance to really deal with black undergraduate students and to see their needs and to try to bring some kind of hope and to establish a sense of pride in them and to give them a historical understanding of who they were and also an understanding of how empire works. So we read things like even Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart, uh, Mm -hmm. novels and so on, that tried to help them to see their place in the universe. And that was an extraordinary experience. It really was. And I'm glad I went there for five and a half Mm -hmm. years. It was an amazing experience for me. Wow. So you... um so what was the major that you um, 
uh, you designed in Black Studies. What was it called, and is it still there? I think it is still there. It was actually we were able to do it through special studies. We did not design a Black Studies department, but mm-hmm. a student could get a, a, a degree with the emphasis on Black Studies. It was through okay. other courses that were being offered and pulling those courses mm-hmm. together. Um, mm-hmm. So that that's that's. But there was no separate department. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I like Alabama. I went there for the first time last year. Yeah. Ah. Montgomery. Yes. You went mm-hmm. to the uh, museum. Yes, and the uh, the National Memorial for for Peace and Justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Were you there? I haven't been there yet. I've got to go. Oh, you will love it because you've got history in Alabama. I don't know where yeah. Tuscaloosa is in relationship to Montgomery. Where is Tuscaloosa not, more north or? Yes, it's not very far uh, because. Okay. Well, just another brief story. When I was in Tuscaloosa, one day I decided to drive to Montgomery, which is where the capital was. And Well, mm-hmm. the other thing is I did work for a year as the assistant to the minister at 16th Street Baptist Church, which is where the four little girls were bombed. Um, you did? But one day, I, yes, I, for a year there. Um, That's in Birmingham. Yes, in Birmingham, right. Oh, and, my. Um, okay. But one, one day I just decided, oh, I've never been to Montgomery, so let me drive to Montgomery. So I did. So I got in my car and just mm-hmm. drove to Montgomery, and I came on the street, ended up on the street, Dexter Avenue. Oh, and yeah. Like, uh, I'm going Dexter Avenue. I said, that's where Martin <laughs> King's church was. And uh-huh. since I was downtown, you could tell I was downtown. I said, well, I guess this church would be to the left uh, in the hood or somewhere. But I turned, so I turned right, <laughs> and I saw the state capitol. And so I was driving toward, toward the state capitol. But right before I got to the state capitol, on my right was Dexter Avenue, Baptist Church. Mm. They're right mm-hmm. there together. It's just you've got a parking lot that separates them. And in my mind, I go, my God, the symbol of white power, where Jefferson Davis took the oath of office as president of the Confederacy. There's a big star there where he took the oath mm-hmm. of office. And then right next to <laughs> across Caddy Court is the symbol of black power with Martin Luther King and Dexter mm-hmm. Avenue Baptist Church. So it just really goes, oh, my goodness, I never knew they were in such close proximity. Now, one of the reasons yeah. this I'm going to that is really important also is that um, Martin Luther King's predecessor, Dr. Vernon Johns, who was also quite rather quite militant and a brilliant preacher, they got rid of him because he was too militant, and he would put things on the marquee like it's okay for um, police to kill Negroes in Montgomery and things like that that many people considered to be incendiary, and so he was constantly being pulled to the um, uh, sheriff's office or other places to, to talk about he needed to tone down his sermons. And when I saw how close they were, again, the state capitol and the church, I could understand. I gave Vernon uh, Johns even more credit for having the audacity to mm-hmm. confront uh, the state capitol and people in the state capitol, the legislators, uh, with his sermons uh, being so close because it was just amazing, just amazing. But they finally got rid of him, Vernon Johns, because they considered him to be too radical, the church, and he did some other things they didn't like. And so they were actually mm-hmm. trying to go into, they wanted somebody who would not give them the kind of publicity that Johns was attracting. 
So and then mm-hmm. ended up with Martin Luther King. <laughs> it's one of the great right. ironies in history. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh wow, wow, wow. That is that is a really great story. And um, and then we move, you know, into um, you know, your your travels and your awards. Um, uh, you're the recipient. Um, uh, let's see. You conducted seminars and workshops locally. And nationally, including one with uh, Rajmohan Gandhi, the grandson yes. of Mahatma Gandhi. Yes. Yeah, right. and right. Built and, in Virginia, um, Richmond. Oh, oh, okay. And and you're also the and recipient we, of numerous. Oh, you go ahead and tell us that was. Uh, it was the uh, <laughs> the group called the Moral Disarmament or Rearmament, whatever, of American Society, and we did a workshop on uh, Martin, no, on Howard Thurman and, and Gandhi. So that was the reason okay. we were put together. Yeah. Mhm. Okay. And uh, let's see. Um, okay. And you're a recipient of numerous community awards, including the first Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King Award for your work with international students while at the Ohio University, where you established the International Students Emergency Fund. Um, do you have a story for that? <laughs> yes, but I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to keep it. Yeah, that, <laughs> I was there during, I, I was really there during the time of the Israeli invasion of uh, Lebanon, uh, which mm-hmm. left a lot of people, Palestinians and other Arabs, just destroyed their homes. In fact, there was one fellow who told me that he was, he was in such distress because he was watching TV and he saw where the bombs had landed right where mm-hmm. his parents lived. And he had not heard from his parents. He had not heard from the neighbors. And he was really concerned. And so, therefore, he did not have money to continue at the school in terms of his tuition. So some of us went to the um, dean, and we argued with him, and we were successful. There was a policy that where they allowed students to, to be behind one semester. And we argued that that should apply to the students. Um, whose families were in the Middle East at the time and did not know what their finances would be. So we did that. Mm-hmm. We did some other things. I used to go, there was a restaurant at campus called the Oasis, <laughs> and it was owned by white Americans. Uh, and their daughter was married to a fellow who was Palestinian. And so I would go there, and the students expected me, it was like my second office. In fact, they would expect me to be there, the same student. I was telling him about one day when I finally talked with him. I went over, and he was a little bit concerned. Mm-hmm. He said, "You haven't been here every day. I've been looking for you, and you haven't been here." <laughs> well, they would not come to my, they would not come to my office as you know campus ministry uh, mm-hmm. because they're they're Muslim, and there was still this oh. kind of um, those, yeah, and but they would go. I would go. I would go to where they were, and so mm-hmm. what happened when I got the award? It was five hundred dollars, and you were supposed to use it. Uh, to, for some kind of international understanding of whatever. And so I met with the Muslim Student Association and said, mm-hmm. this award, I want you to tell me what you want, what will help you with your cause. And they said we would like to bring a speaker in. His name was Jamal Badawi from Canada. And so he came down mm-hmm. and gave a lecture and so on, and we had to work through that. So... Um, not everybody at the university wanted me to get the award. I found out from people on the committee. But a couple mm-hmm. of committee people, one was from uh, South Africa, and others said, you have to give it to him. I mean, there's no way you cannot give it to him because everybody knows that he's been 
the person most involved in trying to help international students. And so I got mm-hmm. that award and, again, used it to bring in Jamal Badawi and to try to help uh, the Muslim students, um, help them to be, bring in Americans to also understand Muslims uh, better than they had in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. How do, you, how do you spell the speaker's name? B-A-D-A-W-I, Jamal, J-A-M-A-L, B-A-D-A-W-I. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and then uh, you got the Negro Spirituals Heritage Keepers Award. Yes. Um, Friends yeah. of the Negro Spirituals back in uh, 2008, and uh, the Faculty Staff Support Award, Afro American Association, uh, the University of Alabama, and 1977, 1976, 1972, and this is the only time the award was presented. Ah, well, so you got it, it every time it, it was presented? <laughs> yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I enjoy working with black students, and they, mm-hmm. you know, they, I guess, look to me for support and help. And mm-hmm. my point is that's the reason I was there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and you also got the Distinguished Alum Award from the Pacific School of Religion in 2007. Yes. And, yeah, and you received academic grants from the Fund for Theological Education and the Danford Foundation. Um, right. And then you have extensive field ministry experience with interfaith groups addressing justice and peace issues. This looks really interesting. This is the last paragraph, but I'm sure you could have gone on. (laughs) Yeah, including the California People of Faith Against the Death Penalty, the Interfaith Alliance for Prison Reform. I'm going to let you talk about them all sort of like one at a time, if you like. But I'm going to read them all though first. Genesis, uh, so prison reform, uh, Genesis, and the San Francisco Interfaith Council, um, and you served you served as member of the steering committee of religious witness with homeless people, and you have yes. been on the forefront of peace and justice activities, speaking to small audiences and rallies that have drawn over two hundred thousand people. And in May and right. May through June of two thousand, you traveled to Morocco with an interfaith delegation of Muslims, Jews, and Christians in a quest to promote interfaith respect and cooperation. And in October 2010, you met His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama, and served on an interfaith panel responding to his teachings. So tell us some stories. Uh, <laughs> well, just I guess when I went to uh, Sister Bernie Galbin was the founder and director of, uh, of the um, Interfaith with Homeless People. And mm-hmm. she always made sure that we said with, not to. We we did a class once, guest lectured, and they said religious witness to homeless people. I said mm-hmm. no religious witness with homeless people, and there is a difference. Mm-hmm. So we, the work yeah. was in San Francisco and basically was trying to make sure that even when there was a budget cut, the school, the city had a moral obligation to not to balance the budget on the backs of the poor. Um, I'll just say, Sister Bernie, just quickly, and I, I won't go was such an important person. She was a Catholic nun. She came from mm-hmm. a family of 14, and this mm-hmm. was a dream of hers, that they needed to deal with issues of, of homelessness. At that time, I was, I was not on the board, um, but whenever she had an issue of homelessness, I was on her list of people who would support. 
And so once I decided that I could not get involved with anything else in the community, that I was overloaded, and I would have to say no to anybody else who asked me to to <laughs> get involved with community. So Sister Bernie called me one night at home, and it was about an issue, and she was very apologetic and said to me, um, I know you've always been supportive, and uh, we have this issue, but I did want to check with you before signing your name. And would you sign? And I said, sure, Sister Bernie. I said, sure, I would sign. And I said, and the other thing I said, Sister Bernie, you don't really have to ask me. I suppose everything that you have done with religious witness with homeless people, I've agreed to. And in fact, you sort of helped me to feel as though I'm doing something to deal with this issue, even though I'm not very active in it. I said, so always feel free. I said, I appreciate the fact you called to get my approval, but if you ever get in a pinch, just sign my name. I will have no problem with that. And so then she said, don't you think it's time for you to become a member of the steering committee a religious witness with homeless people. Now, I just said to myself, I would not get involved in anything else. <laughs> but I couldn't turn her down. No. And I said, yes. And um, there are a couple of times that I was going to resign, and each time, mm-hmm. I don't know if she sensed it or not. Mm-hmm. One was she walked me to, I said, I've got to tell her I'm going to resign. And she, after the meeting, she said, well, did you drive or take bar today? I said, well, I drove today. She said, well, let me walk you to the car. And I said, okay, good. This will give me some time to talk with her. That resigning, so we walked and walked and walked and got to the car, and um, she said, "Is that?" Your? I said, "This is my car." So I was getting ready to tell. She said, "Oh, the reason I walked here, I wanted to be sure you didn't get a ticket, and if you got a ticket, that we would pay for it." I went, "Oh my God!" I said, "How can I resign?" <laughs> you know. And then there was another incident too, and at the end of the year, and I was going to resign. Oh, this first year, and she said, "We've done a lot of good things." This year, but the best thing we've done this year is to get Dorsey Blake to be on our steering committee. Went, oh my God, I can't resign after that. <laughs> so she has this way <laughs> of knowing, you know, that's really amazing. But she is quite an amazing person. The only other thing mm-hmm. I'll say is that with um, it was an honor to to uh, be in the presence of the Dalai Lama. Uh, mm-hmm. It really was. He's quite an amazing person, very quick witted, mm-hmm. and he did something that was very interesting because I was the only black person in the in the audience. When he first came in, mm-hmm. and, and I was not—I'm not a person to go up to politicians and other people and say hi, 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 and go back. And say, oh, I have to shook the hand. But I was like the second row back, and he made—he intentionally moved over and came back to shake my hand. And um, there was something about him that was very, very special, and it was an honor to try to respond to some of his teachings. One of the things that the Dalai Lama does is that when he goes to cities, he sends his people out to talk with the interfaith community, and he tells them he would like to have some kind of audience with them. So he does this everywhere he goes, and I was really quite moved to be in his presence. I, I really was. Mm-hmm. And the Morocco trip was also really wonderful. So, but I won't comment mm-hmm. on the other things. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> So, wow, wow, you, you just stay so busy in this wonderful, you know, program that's planned, you know, to, to celebrate, um, you know, Dr. Howard Thurman's legacy and, um, and this yes. great institution, you know, the, uh, the fellowship, um, the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples, you know, like 75 years, like, whoa, we're still here. And, yes. And, yes. and that wonderful, you know, vista and the location of this, 
I mean, sort of like you don't know like how great it is until you step inside, right? I mean, it's such a such an yeah. unassuming yeah. kind of door. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she yes. And it's like, whoa, right. really? <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a pleasure, and I've got such an extraordinary board of trustees behind me. Mm-hmm. It is really just something, and quite um, a roster. Uh, again, my co-manager is just fantastic, uh, Dr. Benton. She was a student at the University of Creation and Spirituality when I was there. She received her master's mm-hmm. degree, then her doctor in ministry degree. And she's just very extraordinary. We have a minister who's actually in Ashton, Oregon, Lynn Olson, but she's our minister at large. Uh, we have um, Susie Spangenberg, who's our associate minister, uh, Elena Rose Vera, who's an associate minister, and, and we have Martin Todd Allen, who works with chaplaincies. Um, mm. And he is, in fact, he'll be playing Dr. Fisk in the dramatic presentation on, on Saturday. Okay. And the other person <laughs> is um, Felix Justice, who will play Dr. Thurman. Uh, Felix mm-hmm. Justice is an extraordinary actor. He has he created a Martin Luther King play some years ago. It's a speech, and he and Danny Glover used to at least annually go across the United Nations, go, go across the nation, doing uh, Martin and um, Langston. Danny would do oh, Langston wow. Hughes, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, Phyllis would do Martin Luther King. And it's been constructed by award-winning uh, playwright Carol Verberg and another member of the Fellowship Guild who helped create it, Peter Fitzsimmons, who's also quite a well-known actor in the Bay Area. Mm. Nice, nice. Yeah, I was looking at the website, and it looks like um, are there um, on the media, are those services that people can listen to? Yes, yes, we tape our services, so you can go to that on SoundCloud. You can actually mm-hmm. download the services. Oh, wow, going back how many years, 75? No, not that far. Um, I don't know, the last maybe five years or something like that. I, I can't remember. Oh, that's awesome. That's really yes. awesome. Do, do people need to do anything? Like, do they? Do you need to know who's coming for the uh <laughs> Yeah, it would be nice the, uh, if they are at the, okay. uh, it would be good. Mm-hmm. And you would need to go to our website, and there's a link there for people to RSVP for the uh, services. If you forget, come anyway. Both both events are free and open to the public. So mm-hmm. um, the reason we wanted some people to RSVP is because we're providing lunch on Saturday, mm-hmm. and we would like to have a better idea of who might be coming so we have a better idea of how many lunches to prepare. The lunches are free. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Yeah. And then, and then on Sunday, um, you all also provide a meal, right? Yes, we provide a meal. We have a reception after the convocation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those convocations are really fun. But this, this Dorsey O. Blake Forum for Social Transformation sounds really, really wonderful. And I was just wondering, sort of, um, in conclusion, if you could maybe, um, maybe talk about the whole idea of. I'm just thinking about. Um, our ancestors and um, and how mm-hmm. you know despite you know the really harsh you know treatment yes. like the brutality like you know the the pain mm-hmm. that they suffered physically and then the emotional and and spiritual uh, I guess um, I guess war to to like crush their spirit and. They, you know, we our ancestors still came through, you know, and right. um, with with you know with the, 
the attitudes of of um, and like not not warped, you know, or right. changed, or I, I mean, like that. we kept our human form, and it's like, wow, that yes. that is like so amazing. And just wonder if you yes. could talk about that because you you mentioned um, I, don't know, I can't remember what we were talking about, but just sort of like how you know it's an inside job, you know, <laughs> right? You know, this, uh, this work that we do. Dr. Thurman spoke about this in two, uh, a couple ways. Mm-hmm. One, he had a yeah. statement saying that the contradictions of life are neither final nor ultimate. So what do you mean? Mm-hmm. So in other words, they're always what we might think is ultimate. It's not ultimate. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's something that human beings created so we can deal with it. So there are options. Mm-hmm. He said there are options in the living. They're not final nor ultimate. All the negative things, all the the oppression, the abuse, they're not final nor ultimate. So we have an option to create something differently. And then in his spiritual, uh, when he talks, when he analyzes his spiritual, we are climbing Jacob Ladder. Jacob Ladder he said at the oh, very yeah. end of that, that what the question is being raised is at the very end, because he talks about we are climbing, we are climbing, that the question being raised is how have I lived my life in the knowledge of my truth. It's not about what this man has done to me and what this system has done to me. How have I lived my own life with integrity in the knowledge of my truth? And that's what he's trying to get at in most of his writing. Jesus and a disinheritor. I have a responsibility to live in a certain way, regardless of what the man or what society does to me. You know, I, have my, I have to be authentic. I have to search for my authentic self on a regular basis. And I have to live with that. I have to live with my conscience in terms of what, how obedient have I been, number one, to the talent that I've been given, to the integrity that is out there. How have I lived up to what I know to be the truth of my life? And so that's really important. And the slaves did that. It's amazing. They were amazing people being slaves in terms of how they lived without Uh, A lot of bitterness Um, And that's why again My little segregated school was so important To go back to that The people didn't live with dignity And we knew that we were somebody We didn't care what Mm -hmm. society said about us We knew that we had been created In the image of God And that there were expectations for us And we had a community behind us You know Applauding us as we were going on our way So again in the community Mm -hmm. We were all brothers and sisters. Again, I had no relatives, but we had biologically. We had Aunt Howard and uh, Uncle—I mean, Uncle Howard and Ella and Gertie and Scotty. Mm-hmm. These kinds of you know relationships. Um, mm-hmm. And coming out of slavery, it was one of the beautiful songs. It's like "Walk Together, Children, Don't You Get Weary." Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Up, uphold each other. Uh, this is not the end. Whatever the man is doing to us, whatever slavery—that's not. That's just earthly power, but there's a power beyond that, and if we tap into that, we'll be able not only to survive, but to thrive. So you look at a person like Frederick Douglass. You look at a person like Sojourner Jude, Harriet Tubman, these kinds of people with the awful circumstances under which they lived, yet they were so able to, to, to contribute so profoundly to not only to the movement of black people forward, but to the nation in terms of his own understanding of who it ought to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. 
Well, it's been really wonderful talking with you. It's been like, wow, such a I, treat. I just feel so uplifted. This has been really, really fabulous. Thank you. And this weekend's going to be really, really awesome. Thank you so much for letting us know about it. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, again, yeah. Saturday from 10 to 4. It's the Dorsey Blake Forum for Social Transformation. We're located at 2041 Larkin Street in San Francisco. And then there's a convocation at 3 o'clock this Sunday, um, the 20th. And um, same place, 2041 Larkin Street. And the website is www.fellowshipsf.org. Right, yeah. And you mentioned that there's parking on Saturday. And where's the parking going to be again? Uh, it's going to be at St. Bridget Catholic. Used to be Catholic, St. Bridget Catholic Church. It's now the Arts Academy, uh, but there, the St. Bridget still owns the parking lot, and that's it's a two-block walk. It's on uh, Van Ness at Broadway. Van Ness at Broadway. Cool. It's a big Catholic church. Mm-hmm. Well, and and um the uh, and the uh, Art Institute owns it now. Yes, you know they took over a lot of okay. buildings, including including where the Lane Hansberry Theater used to be. But uh, ah. for some reason, hmm. uh, some mm-hmm. reason uh, St. Bridget, which was the church that was there, retained mm-hmm. rights over the parking lot or was a parking lot. So we That's were able good. to negotiate with them. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Yeah, yeah. Particularly in San Francisco, There's parking is yes. is difficult. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Cool. So. Yeah. Well, again, uh, congratulations on 75 years, 75th anniversary. And, uh, yeah, um, wow, well, I'm looking forward to the movie, you know, to the the book, you know, to the chapters, you you know, to whatever comes out or just to more interviews and then we can, we'll have, we'll have, you know, these documents, you know, like these conversations that we have. And I, I appreciate you so much and thank you for doing this interview. You have always been supportive of the church and of me personally and I really do appreciate that and I honor you. I honor you for the work that you are doing. Uh, your journalism, um, your work with Maafa, I really do appreciate you and the community is certainly a much better place because you are in our community. So thank you so much. Oh, you're quite welcome. Well, I look forward to seeing you this weekend. Um, I had some other things oh. I was doing, but um, see if I can move some things around. Definitely want to be in the house on Sunday, but I'm going to see if I can come okay. come on Saturday too, but definitely on Sunday oh. we'll see me. Okay. All right. Thanks Take care. <laughs> okay. You too. Peace and blessings. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So we are going to uh, to play um, uh Miss uh, Jacqueline Hairston um, got some music of hers. I was thinking, what can I? What kind of music can I play? I don't have any from uh, the person who's being honored, but I do have something. I'm thinking about. Um, I don't remember what these sound like, so I think I'm going to play um, uh, Soul Well-Being.
So now we're going to play uh, a uh, interview that we had nine years ago. Um, it was a Howard Thurman special with uh, Reverend Liza Ranco and uh, Dr. Dorsey Blake. And uh, so we're going to play that. We talked a little bit about it earlier in the uh, in the show, and I thought, well, hey, we have some more time, so let's um, go ahead and just play this. It's a really wonderful conversation. You get a chance to hear uh, Dr. Howard Thurman's voice for yourself, so it's really wonderful. And don't forget that um, there's that two-hour interview that you can um, watch on YouTube uh, of Dr. Thurman speaking, and I'll try to find that link and, and put it in the show description. So if you want to check that, you can check a little bit later on. I'm going to look for it now. So we'll be having our regular uh, broadcast tomorrow um, at 8 o'clock uh, Pacific time. So join us for another edition of Wanda's Picks. <laughs> If they won't learn how to pray Good afternoon and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and culture program of the African Sisters Media Network. We are joined today in the studio by, I believe, um, Liza Rankoff. Is that correct? Or is this yes, George? I'm here. Hi. Oh, okay, Liza, great. Thanks a lot for being so flexible this morning. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and Liza is, um, let's see, are you... Um, I know you, oh, yes, you are the founding director of One Life Institute, um, a nonprofit organization based in Oakland. How was the uh, the Spirit and Silence Retreat this past weekend? It was wonderful, Wanda. You know, it was the way that the universe operates to have it the day after the Meserly mm-hmm. Center thing, and our retreat was held downtown at Preservation Park, which is not our usual space, um, but the it was right on time and right in the right place, and we had more than 50 folks come out wow. uh, healing in community. It was a beautiful day. Oh, that's, that's really excellent. That's really excellent. And um, and today um, you are going to be sharing um, a new project that is completed, um, the uh, Living Wisdom of Howard Thurman, uh, visionary, a visionary for our time, a new six 
CD audio collection from Sounds True featuring the words and wisdom of a true spiritual visionary. And um, and you've been a part of this project from its beginning over two years ago, and, and now it's complete. And so, um, yeah, I just wanted to know if you could tell us about this wonderful wonderful project and um and about Howard Thurman. Um I know um uh Dr. Blake is gonna be joining us as well and, and he is um pastor at the uh mm-hmm. oh, there he is. <laughs> so just uh, thinking about you. How are you doing? Steve? Right, right on cue. Right. Hey, Perfect right. timing. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we were just um I was just speaking about, you know, this new project um that's being unveiled, and you have a special um, program all lined up, I believe, uh, Liza, at the Museum of the African Diaspora this this weekend um, on mm-hmm. uh, Saturday, November. What would that be? November. Um, mm-hmm. um, the thirteenth from November two to four. 13th. Okay, excellent, excellent. Well, let me finish reading your bio. Uh, let's see. Um, besides being the founding director of One Life Institute, a nonprofit organization working at the intersection of spirituality and social action, um, uh, you have been uh, have provided offered classes and workshops in spiritual development for over 20 years. And as a scholar, your main interest is exploring the powerful synergy between mysticism and change. Um, you maintain a special emphasis in the life and work of Dr. Howard Thurman, which we've been speaking about, teaching a variety of classes on Thurman in both seminary and community settings, and you are the um, you're the co-editor and producer of this this uh, audio collection that we're talking about presently. Um, Liza, if you could tell, tell our audience how how you happen to have met um, met Dorsey Blake, um, a man of like a lot of different um, hats. I remember when I when I first met him. Uh, he, I think you still do teach there, um, Dorsey, at the um, the Graduate Theological Union uh, at UC Berkeley, and uh, and you were working around um, sort of consciously diversifying the pool of seminarians um, of African descent there, and that was a long time ago. And then and then I see you at all these theater events, and and then I've been to your church a few times, not as many times as I'd like to, because. You know, you, you give out these great awards, and the last person to receive one of these wonderful humanitarian awards was um, Reverend uh, Cecil Williams, and and you gave one to Fania Davis, and you gave you, you've given them to a lot of like people that I really admire a lot, and and then you've actually produced plays at this church, and I and what I remember is that the church that you're pastor of is a church that was founded by um, by Howard Thurman. And so anyway, um, I'm, I'm talking, and, and I asked you, Liza, to tell us how you met Dorsey. <laughs> That's all right, because in, in your sharing all of that, Wanda, you actually begin to tell the story of how I met Dorsey. Um, when I uh, was in my Ph.D. program, my advisor said, you know, I was interested in Thurman, and I was designing uh, independent learning, uh, studying Thurman's works. And she says, you know, another one of my students connected with the pastor of Dr. Thurman's church, and you should look him up. His name is Dorsey Blake. And I think he's at the University of Creation Spirituality, downtown Oakland. I think you can find him there. She, This was a, a non-residential doctoral program, so she was in Jersey, and I was here, and and I found Dr. Blake at this uh, University of Creation Spirituality, and he very graciously agreed to meet with me. 
and uh, mm-hmm. from there very graciously agreed to be on my doctoral committee and thus oh, wow. began a relationship of a dozen or more years. Oh, wow. That's wonderful. So yes, and I was in became involved at Fellowship Church uh, during that time, mm-hmm. and and Dorsey has been a, a mentor for me in my study of Dr. Thurman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so Dorsey, um, perhaps perhaps you could start and tell our audience about um, uh, Howard Thurman and and how you came to know him and and pastor this church. Uh, first of all, I would like to say that Dr. Ranker also is our webmaster at Fellowship Church. So when you go to our oh, website, www.fellowshipsx.org, wow. <laughs> that work is the work of Dr. Ranko. And uh, mm-hmm. so many people have come to Fellowship Church because of that. So it's an excellent website that she's developed, and we're very, very grateful to her for that. And I am extraordinarily grateful for uh, what she has done in terms of the release of these uh, marvelous works of Howard Thurman. Uh, I've been teaching Dr. Thurman for, I can't remember how many years now, 20 years or so. And um, students always ask, how can we get his tapes? How can we hear him? Because the readings are fantastic in and of themselves, and yet there is something about Dr. Thurman's voice Mm -hmm. that really, really holds people and causes them to really center themselves. There's a, there's a way that he has of helping them to get beyond the traffic of the day and to really center themselves, their minds, their souls, and so on. And so um, the tapes themselves are just marvelous. Actually, there's been my church once who just said, if I could just hear some of his tapes, I'm okay. Um, mm-hmm. was, my introduction to Dr. Thurman was also in the academic setting. It was when I was a student at Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley, and um, had been, well, and, and, and was also a student at the Center for Urban Black Studies, which at that time was, in a sense, the black church component of the Graduate Theological Union. It came into being on Martin Luther King's birthday, January 15, 1969, and lasted for 24 years. Um, the director there, Dr. Williams, Isaiah Williams, was a student of Dr. Thurman. Uh, he was at Boston University studying for his master's when Dr. King was there studying for his PhD and others. So he suggested one day that I should do an independent study on Dr. Howard Thurman. And I said, Dr. Who? <laughs> and he said, Howard Thurman. He said, don't you know who Dr. Howard Thurman is? I said, no. Watch <laughs> that. Dr. Howard Thurman is. <laughs> so we actually had a telephone number for Dr. Thurman, and um, I called. I said, okay, let's do this. So I called and set up an appointment to get some of Dr. Thurman's books at the Howard Thurman Educational Trust, which was located at 2020 Stockton in San Francisco. And I went over and rang the three doorbells. It said ring three doorbells because the office was on one level, uh, the living quarters on another level, second level, and then there was a room on the third level where he had some of the cassette tapes that Dr. Ranko and others had now put together. They had, they had cassette tapes there where people could listen to them, and he would bring people from across the United States there, including people like Jesse Jackson, for spiritual refreshment and so on. So that's how I first met Dr. Thurman. He actually answered the door, 
and I didn't know who he was. And basically wow. said, oh, I came to get some books from Dr. Thurman. And he said, yes. So I started walking. I walked right and past him, and there was this <laughs> presence that came over me. And I turned around and said, are you Dr. Thurman? He said, yes. And so we began to talk, and it was a remarkable experience. He told me he was going to be preaching the next day at Dalton Church. I went to hear him, and it was an extraordinary experience. Um, my head was there, I think, throughout the whole service. And when the service was over, I went to greet him and to tell him how wonderful the service was. And he responded by saying, well, yes, I was wondering when you were going to come up for air. Because he seemed to my head down throughout the service. Um, I say it because after that, I did the independent studies, and then a course was developed at the Center for Urban Black Studies on Dr. Thurman. And Jet Magazine actually said it was the first course, to their knowledge, that had been taught at the college level or seminary level on a black person. It was at the Center for Urban Black Studies. I would wow. Jump I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Which was shocking to me because that meant there was not a course on Dr. King or anybody else. Hmm. Um, To jump forward, when I came back in 1977, one of the reasons I came back to Berkeley to to work on my PhD, I was not sure I was going to come back. I was looking at various places, and then Dr. Williams told Dr. Thurman that I was coming back to the Bay Area to work on my PhD. And Dr. Thurman actually called me, then asked me if I would come and work with him at the Howard Thurman Educational Trust. Now, it was through that that I really got to know Mrs. Thurman. So when I returned, after I left again, returned in um, 87, 86, 87, there was a conference at the church of Howard Thurman Scholars, and she invited me to that. And then later when the church was having some real difficulties and so on, and the pastor was leaving, asked me about coming to help the church uh, decide which direction to go and so on. Uh, it was to be, I was to be a consultant with them. And um, the funny thing that happened, and Dr. Renko knows this, so we'll move on up to this, was the mm-hmm. fact that he asked me to, to be in the pulpit the first Sunday of the And she, could I do that? I said, yes, I could do that next sermon. And after that, she asked me if I could come the following week. I said, yes. But she always said, Sir Dorsey, Sir Dorsey, could you be with us next Sunday? And she kept going on until I was there for the end of the year, and then I ended up being pastor, though. <laughs> That's how I got to Fellowship Church. It was through Mrs. Thurman wanting me to be there to help give direction to the church. And I have to say my greatest joy was receiving Dr. Thurman's robe on my installation service in 1994. And it was presented by Mrs. Thurman and hadn't been worn since his death. Um, it really sort of wiped me out. I was speechless and just ended up in tears. And most of the people in the church ended up in tears that day. It was so um, extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And oh, and Wanda, wow. Doctor Blake mm-hmm. won't tell you, but he is the the longest serving pastor in that pulpit. That he has <laughs> he has served longer than even Doctor Thurman served in that pulpit. Wow! <laughs> wow! That is awesome. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness! Yeah. So, um, so Liza, tell us about this this wonderful selection um, of of um, of his work. Six CDs. I mean, that's that's pretty substantive. What what? Yes, and 
Um, well, the the project grew out of my friendship with another wonderful scholar and activist, Dr. Vincent Harding, and mm-hmm. uh, our conversations and our mutual love and respect for Dr. Thurman. And uh, for for folks who may not be familiar with the name Dr. Harding, he was uh, one of Martin Luther King's inner circle. He actually drafted King's Beyond Vietnam speech that was given at Riverside Church a year before King was killed. And Dr. Harding is a preeminent historian of the civil rights movement. He consulted on the Eyes on the Prize PBS series, and we could spend an hour going through his resume. But he was also kind of the adopted son of Dr. Thurman and Mrs. Thurman and uh, became very close uh, with, with the Thurman family. And through that relationship and his ongoing relationship with Thurman's daughter, Olive, who is uh, the last surviving um, child, Dr. Thurman had two daughters, Anne Spencer Thurman, who had been working on the Thurman books and tapes and materials, uh, but who passed away in, what, Dorsey, 2002, was it? Something like that. Something. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, 01 or 02. And then Olive Olive Thurman Wong, who lives in New York, um, is is the the gatekeeper, I guess, would be a way to, to put that in terms of the family and the intellectual legacy of Dr. Thurman. And so Dr. Harding uh, called up Sister Olive, and she was very excited and inspired by the proposal. And she brought on board Dr. Luther Smith, uh, another marvelous Thurman scholar based in Atlanta. And the four of us met in Colorado uh, at the offices of Sounds True. Um, And Tammy Simon, who is the founder and, and director of Sounds True, has great love for Dr. Harding, and because of that love, so it's all about love, uh, because of that relationship and that love, she said, okay, this is not somebody who our listeners, who our customers are familiar with, but we we hear from you the importance of Dr. Thurman's work, and we will uh, we will get on board with this. And so over the course of really close to two and a half years now, that meeting was in June of 2008, um, D- uh, Dr. Harding, Dr. Smith, and myself went on a uh, listening retreat and listened to, to hours and hours and hours of Thurman. We, all of us, listened independently and sent recordings back and forth. Um, we came up with six um, categorical headings for each of the CDs, and uh, Sounds True suggested that as a bridge for people who were unfamiliar with Thurman's work, that six what they call living voices, uh, contemporary folks whose lives have been touched by Thurman, would be engaged to introduce each CD. And so we were very blessed to have Alice Walker, Michael Beckwith from Agape in Los Angeles, um, as well as Dr. Harding and Dr. Smith and myself, and a... uh, scholar um, in the works of Abraham Joshua Heschel, 
named Ed Kaplan uh, was the was the introducer of the sixth CD, and uh, a local musician and expert in the spirituals who I'm sure you know Jackie Hairston. Oh uh, Jack- yeah. Yeah. So Jackie composed and recorded original music to be the interlude that weaves together the um, different Thurman recordings. And it's all to, we squeezed every minute out of every CD. So there are six CDs, but it's actually seven and a half hours of material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's great. So um, I was reading um, uh, with regards to Spirit in Action from One Life Institute website, uh, onelifeinstitute.org, if people want to find out more about this wonderful um, institution that, that you established, um, Liza uh, that uh, Dr. Howard Thurman was a philosopher, theologian, educator, reformer, and author of more than 20 books. Uh, he championed mm-hmm. Gandhi's nonviolent methods in the West and inspired many in the American struggle for civil rights, justice, and freedom. And that uh, Thurman's life and work revealed the powerful synergy between mystic spirituality and social engagement, the inseparability of personal and social transformation. And um, that really speaks uh, to um, to your and um and Dorsey's ministries because uh from what I know of both of you, you're about being a part of the community and giving people that want to change or be social change agents those tools, those necessary tools to help uh keep themselves uh a ch- a charged, which, you know, something that happens when people uh tap into those retreats that you just had one this past weekend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, I was wondering if you could sort of talk about that whole idea of having an active participatory life uh, that um, Dr. Thurman seems, you know, the scene you seem to be following and both of you seem to be following in his footsteps, literally. And and then, um, uh, Dorsey, you you know, you're pastor of this church, but the Fellowship of All Peoples, the nation's first intentionally interracial interfaith congregation. Yeah, and it says it was co-founded by Dr. Howard Thurman, um, who was one of the first four African Americans to ever meet with Mahatma Gandhi? Uh, yeah, and um, and it says Mrs. Sue Bailey Howard Thurman presented Dr. Thurman's role to you at your installation service. I'm like, whoa, that's like heavy duty. Talk about walking in someone's footsteps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, comments. Um, Wanda, I don't know if you want to also give the web address for Fellowship Church, which I think you were probably oh, just yeah. reading off of that, which is uh, www.fellowshipsf, like San Francisco, dot org. Um, okay. But to speak to to speak to the question that you that you raised around this um, the social engagement piece, and I think that is certainly part of what drew me to Dr. Thurman was his absolute seamless integration of a a deep profound spirituality and a concern for social justice and that in our society so often that is dichotomized that people can either be spiritual or be activists or be concerned with social issues um, but that we're not often told that those two are one and the same, that uh, 
you know, Thurman talks very clearly about the mystic encounter, the creative encounter with the divine, and that when we go down deep within, we actually come up inside of everything else, that everything is one. And he was very clear about his understanding of the oneness of all life. And that oneness places an ethical demand on us to have concern for the common good. Uh, he was not a boots on the ground, you know, going to the marches activist, um, but he was very engaged in, in some ways, what, what you describe is what One Life seeks to do in supporting and uplifting um, and the spiritual renewal of activists, but also really the philosophical foundations. Um, his work, Jesus and the Disinherited, was a magnificent book that he published in 1949 that served in, in some ways as the philosophical blueprint for the civil rights movement and for the nonviolent strategies and practice, spiritual nonviolence of Martin King and movement folks. Um, I'm, I'm sure Dr. Blake can... can say a lot more to that point as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. I was Go going ahead. to say that <laughs> Dr. Redker is um, superb in describing the synergy, the connection that Dr. Thurman always holds uh, between mysticism and social change, social action, uh, being engaged in civic responsibility, participating in the civic life of the community being very, very critical. And I think that's one of the reasons that he appeals so to particularly people who are in some form of religious leadership and community work. I think it's also the reason he appeals so to students who are searching to have relevant ministry, who are trying to figure out themselves how to live in this very demanding and complex, complicated world. That's one of the things that happens in Jesus and the disinherited. Dr. Thurman helps us to see Jesus and his connection to the ground of being, his mysticism, and that, and how that helps him to determine how to live within the midst of oppression as a disinherited person in a place where there were, his people are oppressed by the Roman Empire. And Martin Luther King and others could certainly see the relevance of that understanding for living in this society, particularly as people were marginalized. Uh, it's been used, that understanding, by all kinds of people. Several years ago, for example, Jim Matulska, who was head of the Metropolitan Community Church, which is a largely gay lesbian church, uh, was one of our speakers for one of our sessions on Dr. Howard Thurman for his birthday. And he talked about how that spoke to him so critically as a gay person, how Jesus and disinherited helped him to see the need not only for the mystic understanding, but also how that plays out in the larger society. In fact, Thurman talks about the fact that when we have our creative encounters with God or when we have our mystical relationship with the ground of our being, what the mystic wants to do then is to see that in the person's daily living, so that the experience, the encounter, the 
the the being wrapped up in the presence of the all-pervading presence that one feels in the encounter, that is not just left there at that moment, but it speaks to how the person lives on a day-to-day basis. That sense of unity that is experienced there, that person wants to see in everyday life, and therefore is obligated to work against those kinds of things that prevent that oneness from being manifested in the larger society in the daily living. And that's, again, part of how he connects mysticism and social activism, social change. We have a responsibility for the society in which we live to try to reflect that oneness that we experience in the mystical encounter with the divine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was thinking, um, and you can let me know, um, Liza, if you think it works, about playing um, the uh, clip that you sent me, um, All Experiences in Arc. Um, I -hmm. thought that might sort of tie into what you were talking about presently. What do you think? Um, it's, It's a little bit long, but depending on oh. how the flow of your of your program, um, mm-hmm. how long I think it's long? about it's, I think <laughs> it's about I think it's about twelve thirteen minutes. Oh, okay. And what about joy beyond pain? Is that joy beyond pain is, is is more like six minutes, and that that might be that might be a good okay. one. Yeah, we can end with a longer one. Okay, let's let's uh, let our audience hear this this wonderful man's voice. Sure. There often seems to be a clearly defined limit to human endurance. Everyone has had the experience of exhaustion. If you cannot get to bed, you're sure that you will go to sleep standing, for instance, and then something happens. It may be that a friend comes by to see you, a friend whose path has not crossed yours in several years. It may be that there are tidings of good news or of tragedy. At any rate, something happens in you with the result that you are awake, recovered, even excited. A few minutes before, the weariness was closing in like a dense fog, but now it is gone. Of course, knowledge about the body and mind gives an increasingly satisfying explanation of this kind of experience. The important thing, however, is that beyond the zero point of endurance, there are vast possibilities. The precise limitations under which you live your particular life cannot be determined. Usually, the stimulus, the incentive, must come from the outside, be brought to you on the wings of external circumstance. This means that the power available to you in great demand is not yours to command. I wonder about this. The simple fact of revitalizing human endurance opens a great vista for living. It cannot be that what is possible to the body and nervous system by way of tapping the individual resource on demand is denied the spirit. The spirit in man is not easily vanquished. It is fragile and tough. You may fail again and again, and yet something will not let you give up. Something keeps you from accepting no as a final answer. It is this quality that makes for survival of values when the circumstances of one's life are most against decency, goodness, and right. Men tend to hold on when there seems to be no point in holding on because they find that they must hold on. 
It is often at such a point that the spirit in man and the spirit of God blend into one creative illumination. This is the great miracle. The body and the nervous system know this. I'm sure that each one of us has had the experience of coming to, to what we commonly refer to as the end of our rope. Our physical endurance reaches its highest point, or depending upon your point of view, its lowest point. And we, we know that we can't, we can't go on. We, we just don't have enough physical energy left to last another minute. And then we have all experienced how something often happens to us. We, we get what is called a second wind. We are able to tap resources that under ordinary experiences of living are not apparently available to us. But when a certain kind of overwhelming demand is made of our bodies, the body seems to know where the secret energy is, and it unlocks the door and the energy flows. Now, there are certain physiological explanations for it, but they are, are really not explanations. They are descriptions of what happens. But precisely what, what is the, the, the thing that, that makes this possible, we, we do not quite know. The only thing that we do know is that under certain circumstances, we are able to go beyond what we thought we were able to do or to experience. Now, this is true with our bodies. It is true again and again with, with the renewal of our minds. Now, if it is true with our bodies and true with our minds, then it must of necessity be also true with our spirit. When we are up against a situation that exhausts us, that wearies us out because of, of its demands upon us, we discover again and again that there are boundless resources of the spirit that are available to us. And men of religion say that this, this resource is, is in, in God and we are able to lay hold on this additional energy that makes it possible for us to do what under other circumstances is impossible to do. Over and over again, there is something about the human spirit that insists that there is available additional resources, more than we have ever experienced in the living of our lives. And it is then that we discover that the test of life is often found in the amount of pain, disturbance we can absorb without spoiling our joy. This is the gift in man. It is a part of the givenness of God.
was that Miss Hairston on the piano? Yes. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you all want to talk about what we just listened to? Dorsey? Whenever I hear Dr. Thurman, I just have to frown for a while. <laughs> because he does it. He just makes me center. He makes me stop. Um, and I think that's very important. One of the things that he says very clearly, and he says it consistently, is that there are resources available to us that the universe will respond to us, to our needs, if we trust in that universe. And so it makes us helps us to understand that our little lives may be little in some ways, but not really, because we have, we're inheritors of and participants in what marvelous thing that keeps the world moving the marvelous energy that is available to creation and continues to sustain creation in each one of us, that energy, the energy of God or creation, is available to us. And therefore, he often says the contradictions of life that we face, the trials, tribulations, are neither final nor ultimate because we do have this extraordinary resource available to us into which we can tap to deal with all of the pain that we had, to deal with disappointments and frustrations and so on. And that's very not only consoling, but it is energizing. It inspires me to know that whatever I am going through, there are resources beyond what may appear, societal resources or personal resources, that can help me make it not only through the night, but through the coming day. And he really develops this too when he talks about the spirituals in terms of how they help the slave to, to be able to deal with the trials in life. It's a very moving, very moving excerpt, uh, Joy Beyond Pain. So thank you again, Dr. Ranko. That was, was marvelous to have that listed as one of the uh, CDs. Yes. Yes, and and that and and no accident. The CD that I chose to introduce of the set is the CD about coping with difficulty, um, and that's what that cut uh, comes from. That particular CD. One of the things that has touched me the most profoundly on a personal level uh, in Dr. Thurman's work is how he addresses issues of suffering and struggle, and seeing them. It, not as um, something that we need to fix to get out of. How do we how do we remove suffering? How do we bypass suffering? How do we anesthetize ourselves from pain? But rather, how do we creatively engage the struggles in our life as a doorway into a deeper experience of God and into a deeper, richer expression of who we ourselves are called to be. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. the other thing that comes along with that is then, therefore, the affirmation that we are not alone. Right. Right. And that, that fundamental oneness of all life that we spoke of earlier as part of the what is experienced in, in the what Thurman calls the, the creative encounter, what we might call the mystic encounter, 
is is the direct experience of not being alone. And and to riff back, Wanda, to your question about the retreat that we had on yesterday, that I think that was the greatest gift for folks that attended um, our Spirit, Sound, and Silence retreat was to be in community at a time when the community is hurting. And that was really the gift, I think, for the protest rally on Friday afternoon was for folks to come together and know that we are not alone, whether it's in our personal struggles or in our larger collective struggles for justice. Yeah, I got a text message after uh, Mazalie's sentencing um, had happened, and it said uh, that there is a higher authority and the judicial system is not in charge. That's right. And, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, um, yeah, this is, um, you know, the, the section, Coping with Difficulties, that this particular um, piece comes from is uh, among many topics. Um, one is, according to um, the information that I have, is the inward journey, uh, encountering God, the power of love, healing community, and the fullness of living. How did you happen to choose these particular topics um, to um, to highlight? Because uh, Dr. Thurman, his the breadth of his work is is certainly beyond um, you know one collection. I'm sure maybe this is just right one of many to come if you can get you know the funding to do it. Um, but why why this particular introductory um, selection of of sermons and topics? Mm-hmm. Yeah, as you point out, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of hours of archival recordings of Dr. Thurman. And these six topics actually were suggested by Dr. Luther Smith. We, you know, we tweaked them a little bit, but it was it was uh it was his suggestion that this would be a helpful way to organize the content. And, you know, during the process, of course, we thought any given sermon or uh, meditation or prayer could have fit in several different CDs. So it's, you know, it's somewhat arbitrary, but on a deeper level, all of us had the sense that we were being guided, that really this is Dr. Thurman's project and in, you know, the, the, the late hours and early hours of listening and discerning and trying to feel our way into which um, which tracks should go where, which tracks should be included. I mean, how do you do justice to uh, 500 hours of material in a seven-hour collection? There's no way. Um, but we really felt like Dr. Thurman's spirit was guiding us and uh, the way... Dr. Blake talked about walking up the stairs and feeling this presence overcome him uh, in Dr. Thurman's person. I, I feel like that presence is still very, very available um, through his spirit as an ancestor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Doctor, I didn't know that. We're speaking. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Okay, Dr. Rankle used a very important word when she said that. We they were sort of feeling their way, and Dr. Thurman talked about that a lot. 
feeling awake, feeling awake into the presence. Uh, it's a very important concept. So it's not just an intellectual thing, but and, and it indicates that the universe is part of us, the presence is part of us, and we're feeling our way into a certain kind of reality. So I just love what she said. In other words, there is no, there is no preset uh, categorization of the CDs. And they were open to the spirit, to let the spirit guide them, to determine presence guide them, and they came up with these marvelous, I think, topics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and when you talk about feeling, um, we can think about it both philosophically and tangibly because, you know, you could feel your way uh, intellectually and spiritually, but you could also feel your way, tact, you know, with, as a tactile sense, you know, actually yeah. literally feeling your way. And and then since this is an audio, you can you can hear it and you can feel it. You know, there are a lot of, it hits you on a lot of different soil um, mm-hmm. planes, uh, just mm-hmm. that those way. <laughs> yeah. And and you know a a real gift in Dr. Thurman's work both in his writing and I think in this audio collection is that you can return to it again and again and again and you're always going to hear something different, see something different as many times as I have read his books. When I open it, I'm like, well, when did he put that in there? Cuz I know that wasn't in there the last time I read it. When I listen, as many times as I've listened to these recordings, I hear something new each time I listen, that Thurman is a magnificent companion on the journey, on the spiritual journey, on the life journey, on the journey of transformation. Um, And so while somebody might say, oh, you know, why should I invest this money and get this CD collection? I'm just going to listen to it one. It's going to sit on my shelf. It's the kind of thing that you that that becomes um, a, a walking partner for life. And in the the history of Thurman's life and ministry, the Howard Thurman Educational Trust that Dr. Blake mentioned earlier distributed cassette tapes, cassette recordings of Thurman's sermons, of his broadcast meditations, of his prayers, and that in itself was a global ministry of listening rooms, of people collecting these audio tapes, of passing them on from one person to another as a form of encouragement. And then for decades, that audio was not available. And so to have it now available again digitally um, is is a gift not only for the folks that have been hungry who have known about Thurman in the past and have been seeking for the opportunity to hear him again, but a gift for the generation's future who now can have access to him in a very intimate and immediate way. Mm-hmm. Yes. One of the audience knows that we're speaking to um, to Dr. Um, Liza J. Rankoff uh, as well as um, uh, Reverend Dr. Dorsey Blake, about uh, a new wonderful collection um, from uh, One Life and Sounds True, uh, The Living Wisdom of Howard Thurman, a new six-CD audio collection. And there is a special program on Thurman on Saturday, November 13th at the Museum of the African Diaspora from 2 to 4 p.m. This is in San Francisco. 
And this program is going to be facilitated by uh, by Liza, Dr. Liza Rankoff, celebrating the life and work of Dr. Howard Thurman and the release of this audio collection. And um, uh, I don't have a number or a website for Moad. Do you want to give one? Sure. Uh, the website is moad m o a d s f like San Francisco, M-O-A-D-S-F dot org. And the phone number is 415-358-7200. They're located at 685 Mission Street in San Francisco. And it's uh, just a few blocks walk, I want to say, from, is it the Powell Street or is it the Montgomery? People could look on the uh, art website. You can do Mm -hmm. either one. You can walk down. You can do the Montgomery or you can walk yeah. <laughs> yeah. At that presentation, Wanda, folks should know that not only um, will the audio be there, and we'll actually have the CDs on sale uh, at a special discount, but we'll be showing some video of Dr. Thurman. Oh, nice. And part oh, of, yes, there's um, some wonderful interview video called Conversations with Howard Thurman that was recorded just a few years before he passed. And part of the permanent um, uh, permanent display at MOAD is a 12-minute film that was created by uh, Arle Prelo, who you may know, uh, has been working on a Howard Thurman documentary. And Moad uh, commissioned her to do this short film that is a permanent part of their exhibit there, and we'll be showing that as well. It's called Howard Thurman, Spirit of a Movement, talking about the uh, the spirituality within movements for social justice, uh, from Gandhi through Thurman and coming forward. Oh, that's really lovely. Um, I want to thank both of you so much for joining us today. Um, I mean, I was just sort of reading more of your bio, um, uh, Dorsey, about, you know, your work, you know, in field ministries and, um, you know, uh, in other interfaith groups on justice and peace issues, including ANSWER, and I'm thinking International ANSWER. Is that the answer you're speaking of in your bio? Okay, yeah, they do some great work in religious witness with homeless people, and and then, you know, you... um, you integrated at uh, the University of Alabama as a faculty, first black male professor there, and you have a background, uh, an academic background, um, uh, scholarly in sociology. Uh, that's where you got your, what is ABB? The AB? In sociology. Yeah, what does that mean? Yeah. It's just, uh, it's a Bachelor of Arts for Brown University. They would say AB rather than BA. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then um I guess, you know, um coming here is, you know, where you got your PhD at um Pacific well, Religion. Right. Hmm? It was actually Doctor I mean, Ministry, not a PhD. Oh. Oh, okay. So yeah, anyway. Doctor Ministry, yeah. Okay, right. And then um you uh yeah, you got your Doctor of Ministry from United Theological Seminary and you got your Master's Divinity from Pacific School of Religion. Yeah, but you were like, I think um, one of my, I don't know, you, you, when I think about, um, you know, Holy Hill, I think about you. Um, you. Uh, trying Thank to, trying to keep an African, keep an African, you know, centered presence there. And and then Liza, I met you through my daughter, um, who has participated in your wonderful uh, arts exhibits 
Um, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, and and it's just it's sort of like something we we look forward to in the spring. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, when you have it. Yeah, look forward to it again. It's coming up on March twelfth this year. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I want to close with with one of the pieces, and um, and you can tell me which one. Sorry. Mm-hmm. So just quickly one thing because I want to go back to quick something quickly with Dr. Rankle said when people might say, Well, why should I purchase this? I might only listen to one. If you listen to one, it's worth it. Because you <laughs> go back over the years and listen to it. Uh she said, which is true, and I always say I can't teach Thurman. I introduce you to Thurman and that right. Thurman mm-hmm. would be a very faithful companion. And so even if you say if you just purchase this and say, I'm only gonna listen to one tape or whatever Purchase it, because at one case, mm-hmm. it's going to help you on your journey. Thurman was a seeker, as Vincent Harding says, and he will companion each one of us as we seek our fullness, our wholeness, our oneness. So I would urge everyone to have this collection as part of their library. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Th- um, thank, thank you oh, for that. <laughs> oh, yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, um, I think, I think, I think, um, the uh, Reverend Eloise's community is where I first heard of Howard Thurman, and then, and then that was, and then so when I, when Moad Museum of African Diaspora opened, and they have that film about Dr. Mm-hmm. Thurman, you know, that name recognition <laughs> made me yeah. want to, uh, yeah, to, to watch the film, and then also, um, you know, um, your church, because I, I read all the materials when I when I came to the church, even though it wasn't a church service, it was a play. Uh, I was coming to. Um, you talked about Dr. Thurman, so it's like, oh, there he is again. You know, who is this man? Yeah, yeah. And and yeah. Wanda, maybe since you mentioned Reverend Eloise's church, um, East Bay Church in Oakland, I'm going to be teaching a 10 week class on Thurman oh. at East Bay Church okay. uh, starting the first week in February. So uh, okay. early in the new year. And um, folks can, again, hit up our website, uh, One Life Institute, that's all written out, O-N-E-L-I-F-E, institute.org, for information about ordering the CDs or about the uh, upcoming Thurman class. Okay, super. And um, I I was thinking about perhaps playing the one um, Joy Beyond Pain, just sort of as um, sort of a a shout-out to... um, to Oscar Grant's family and to his mother in particular, um, Wanda Johnson, uh, yeah, at that time. That, that is the one that you just played, right. just so you know. Oh, that is the one? Oh, that's uh-huh. the one? Okay, well then, um, yeah. let's see, which other one? I've got like, a lot it, of great ones here. <laughs> yeah. I want to sing a new song. Which one? Yes, sing, let's, let's end on a note of hope uh, for okay. I Will Sing a New Song. And yeah. since we've only got about... Five minutes left, that would be about the right time for you. Okay, super. Okay, well, thank you both so much for joining us. <laughs> thank you so much. All right, peace and blessings. I will sing a new song. The old song of my spirit has wearied itself out. It has long ago been learned by heart so that now it repeats itself over and over, bringing no added joy to my days or lift to my spirit. It is a good song, measured to a rhythm to which I am bound by ties of habit and timidity of mind. 
The words belong to old experiences which once sprang fresh as water from a mountain crevice fed by melting snows. But my life has passed beyond to other levels where the old song is meaningless. I demand of the old song that it meet the need of present urgencies. Also, I know that the work of the old song, perfect in its place, is not for the new demand. I will sing a new song. As difficult as it is, I must learn the new song that is capable of meeting the new need. I must fashion new words born of all the new growth of my life, my mind, and my spirit. I must prepare for new melodies that have never been mine before, that all that is within me may lift my voice unto God. How I love the old familiarity of the wearied melody. How I shrink from the harsh discords of the new untried harmonies. Teach me, my Father, that I might learn with utter abandonment and abiding enthusiasm the fresh new accent, the untried melody, to meet the need of the untried morrow. Thus, I may rejoice with each new day and delight my spirit in each fresh unfolding. I will sing this day a new song unto thee, O God. This concludes The Living Wisdom of Howard Thurman, a visionary for our time. Original music composed and recorded by Jacqueline Hairston. As a special bonus, we are including a recording of Dr. Thurman's complete sermon, Quest of the Human Spirit, at SoundsTrue.com slash bonus slash living wisdom. An excerpt from this sermon, A Tribute to Life, included in Session 1, was played at Dr. Thurman's memorial service at the First Unitarian Church of San Francisco in April 1981. Again, to hear the complete sermon, Quest of the Human Spirit, go to SoundsTrue.com slash bonus slash livingwisdom. If you'd like more information about online events, courses, and free podcasts, please visit SoundsTrue.com. Sounds True. Many voices, one journey. Thank you for listening.